I'm Becky. I'm Nicole. And this is the Twisted Sisters podcast. Uh, first off, I think I want to do a little announcement. Um, we are going to take a month off, just like off. We're going to take August off. Um, so this will be our last episode for um, a month. So we'll be back in September. But um, every now and then, we just need to take a break. <laughs> and um, <laughs> right now, it's it's uh, for many reasons a good time for both of us to do that now. At least we maybe prematurely came back. Yeah. And, you know, it's a difficult time right now for many reasons. And yeah, we both need to take care of ourselves, our families, and also our communities and all of the energy that is going on in the world right now. Um, Figure out how to recenter and, um, and be able to be a positive force in the world instead of just doing instead like it feels like right now we're just doing on autopilot yeah yeah and not not intentionally doing but just autopilot Mm -hmm. and um that's not sustainable or healthy and we can't we can't put out the quality that that becky and i want yeah when both of us are are struggling a little bit yeah a lot of it yeah, but we're like, we will be okay. <laughs> and um, if you're already in our lives, um, other than just listening to the podcast, but if you're actually connected to us already, we've probably told you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but also we will be back and we'll be back in September. So yes. Um, Ho- but- hopefully refreshed, renewed, grounded. Right, exactly. Less tired. Oh, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, the world's not going to change before then, but yes, hopefully less tired. Uh, with that being said, let's get into what we are drinking. Um, so, Nicole, what do you have? <laughs> uh, as per usual, uh, water, because we are we are recording this on a my extended uh, lunch slash dinner break from work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, we are probably going to break into some beers at the office mm-hmm. uh, when I get back because we have had a catastrophic couple of days. Mm-hmm. Fun. Uh, yeah, we had some some server issues and in shipping and receiving, when you have no access to your server on a weekend, uh, it's not fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Technically it's Monday and I shouldn't be at work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You said that. I was like, oh, wait, it's the wrong day. Mm-hmm. This is not your work day. Yeah. Yeah. No. Right. Yeah. Catastrophic system failure over the weekend. So. Yeah. It's, it's uh, this weekend has been a doozy on both of us. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That was why I felt it was important when I texted you on Saturday or on mm-hmm. Friday, when I said, uh, that oh, yeah, Friday, I, something yeah. catastro- catastrophic happened at work. Mm-hmm. It was not interpersonal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yes. Well, fun. Um, so did you say what you, Oh yeah. Just water. Just, just water. I'm drinking just water as well. Um, right before we started recording. Um, so it's a little bit earlier than we normally, well, no, let's see. When we record no. on Sundays, it's later, but it's a little bit earlier than if we record on a random Thursday or whatever. But like, it's, I drank coffee right before we started recording. Um, and so I didn't think like drinking alcohol right 
after that was a good idea. Um, so I'm drinking water with lime. So, yeah. It's the best. Yeah, it is pretty good. It's how I drink. How I drink more water is if I put lime or lemon in it. That's fair. So, yeah. Um, okay. So fangirling. Um, have you remembered we, we were talking? Nope. About no idea. Category. Nope. Okay. Well, no I have idea. another YouTube channel. As if anyone's surprised, <laughs> I I can go with YouTube channels for a long time. But this one um, is Jessica Jessica Kelgren Fozard. Um, she is a, um, a a disabled lesbian woman from the UK. Um, she is absolutely delightful, but she has um, a few different genetic disabilities. Um, she uh, she's deaf. And blind in one eye has Ellers Danlos oh. syndrome has um, POTS and then um, something else. Um, and um, so she talks about disability issues, but she's also okay. But like I f- first started watching her because she is like she has like a 1950s aesthetic. Ooh, so I love she, that. Yes. Oh, she, so how she dresses, how she does makeup, her hair and everything. She's very, very 1950s um, woman. And um, so that's how I first started watching her. And I don't remember what she was talking about the first episode, the first video I saw. It's been actually back a few months or a year ago since I started watching her. But um, she's just delightful. And she doesn't like she talks about um, she's answered why she doesn't sound deaf because she didn't go. She hasn't always been deaf. Like she um, that was part of one of her like uh, neural um, uh, conditions that caused her to go deaf. Um, But um, yeah, she's delightful. And her wife, um, Claudia, is a dentist um, and she's also great. so yeah, and her uh, Claudia is half Malaysian, and Jessica is very much white British. <laughs> and so uh, I think, uh, but they're just the cutest too. Like you can tell that they really, really love each other, and that they really like their like best friends as as well as spouses. So yeah, um, yeah. So. Anyway, uh, Jessica Kelgren Fozard. So her um, the last name is spelled K E L L G R E N dash F O Z A R D, and they're just awesome. So I love it. A lot of fun. You'll um, uh, they'll make you smile, and they'll also teach you a lot about disabilities and about especially about um, people with disabilities who don't look like they have disabilities, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, she's talked about like how it, at least there in her context, it seems more, uh, so, I don't know, socially acceptable, but like people just react differently to elderly people who have disabilities than younger people who have disabilities yes. because she's in her early 30s and she, uh, in, unless you're looking for it, she doesn't look like she has a disability, but she's gotten mobility um, AIDS that she's, um, that she uses. And so people are like, what, 
how like you look perfectly normal as they say um why are you using that mobility aid she's like because i need it (laughs) so yeah um yeah i love their channel well her channel i guess well claudia's on there enough that it's almost like their channel (laughs) (laughs) so but anyway yeah I need to I need to up my YouTube game. <laughs> I listen to to Disney uh, theme park background music, and that's mm-hmm. about it. That's yeah. what I use YouTube yeah. for. Yeah. Well, you, you have more books and poetry than I do, so you know I do have a lot of books and poetry. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of lot of Audible books, mm-hmm. a lot, and some some older renditions of Audible books that are now like based on who's reading them, slightly problematic, but. Ah, well, yeah. Yeah. It's it that's its own discussion. Mm-hmm. And then there's people who are reading audible books that should not be reading audible books. Willem Dafoe, I'm talking to you. Oh, just because of like their their his, skill in reading. No, it's <laughs> it's his voice mm-hmm. does not lend itself well to two hours of, of a short story. Yeah. Plus, bless him. He does voices. Oh, oh and it is okay. not good. It is okay. it is um grating. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So well on, on that, that happy note. <laughs> on that note, let's get into our not grating unraveling with Nate. It's a very um a, a very delightful conversation. For our unraveling today, we have with us my friend Nate Nakao. Nate, it's great to talk with you. Thank you. It's great to be on the on the show with you guys. Yeah, Nate and I met. It's almost exactly two years ago now. I think. I think. I believe it was in August two years ago um, at a theology beer camp in North Carolina, of all places, yeah. where neither one of us are from. <laughs> Um, and at that, Nate had mentioned how he um, does is involved in something called um, Brew Theology, I believe is what it's called. Um, and there are various chapters throughout the country, but Nate's in um, at the New Jersey chapter. So, Nate, would you just go ahead and start off with a um, explanation of what that is? What Brew Theology? Yeah. So, Brew Theology is essentially a um, a community designed to develop um, interfaith conversation, um, interfaith, interreligious, non-faith, non-religious. Um, well, actually, it's more designed to to foster that kind of community um, through um, healthy, meaningful, eclectic dialogue in pub and brewery environments. Um, except right now, we're doing it online. Um, I know that a couple of of communities might have begun some socially distant face-to-face um in-person interaction um here in jersey we haven't i haven't actually made a decision as far as when we're going to um uh to reconvene in person um as things are sort of in flux right now um but the breweries have started reopening um here and there so that's kind of where we're at sorry i'm getting into current events (laughs) no that's okay Um, go for it but like yeah so that's essentially what we do. Um, we get together, um, our chapter gets together, um, every other week. Um, there, the, 
the mothership, as, as I sometimes call them, uh, Denver Brew Theology. They get mm-hmm. together um, every week. And we just talk around various topics on um, faith and science and politics and um, spirituality, religion, philosophy, anything and everything. Um, I'll run down a, a couple of topics that we've that we've um, that we've covered in the past. Um, things like the uh, the LGBT the role of LGBTQ. Um, people in traditional faith environments. Um, We talked about perennial philosophy, the relationship of Buddhism and Christianity, um, the afterlife, uh, Gnosticism, uh, and even some stuff like in current events such as um, anti-racism, white supremacy and religion, um, and that kind of thing. So um, yeah, that's basically what we do. Um, How did you get involved with it? Um, so it's a long and sordid tale. Um, it, it actually started, at least for me, I was part of, um, the pastoral staff of a, um, of a very conservative evangelical church, um, that was part of the, and I, I'll just throw some like names out there. I don't know if your audience is going to be familiar with any of these, but, um, there was a, a church planting network called the Acts 29 network. and they, uh, that the church that I was a part of, um, uh, was a member of that network and they had a, a, a group of guys that would get together, um, and just kind of sit around at a pub and drink beer and talk about theology. But inevitably it was always, um, Calvinist theology, um, which eventually got boring. Um, and over time I got as I pulled away from Calvinism, um, I got tired of it. The guy who was organizing it, uh, my friend named Paul, he got tired of it. And, um, we just, our conversation started to head in different directions that I think the rest of the group wasn't really comfortable with. Um, at the same time, I was, um, uh, kind of increasingly uncomfortable with my role, um, as a, a pastor in this church. Um, and, the um, the lead pastor and executive pastor uh, asked me to uh, to step back and resign from my role, um, which I did initially not so gladly. But looking back, I'm so glad that uh, that I'm no longer a part of that um, environment. And the group that I was a part of, this little theology pub, as we called it, um, eventually kind of dwindled. And the guy who was organizing it. Um, and I, we were like, well, this was fun while it lasted. Um, and around the same time, I got a, a call from an old colleague of mine from a different non-denominational church that I had worked at who had moved out to Denver um, from New Jersey and out there had started this thing called Brew Theology. And he started bugging me because he was he heard through the grapevine that I had um, left the ministry and it sounded like the perfect opportunity to get involved in an interfaith conversation group. So that's kind of how I got sucked into it. Um, he kept bugging me. I kept saying, I'm not ready for that sort of thing. And then eventually I was like, you know what? Talking about other religions and drinking beer. Sure. Why the hell not? I'll do it. (laughs) Right. Um, so I know a lot of people have probably heard about like pub theology, especially those maybe in our group. 
Um, and I remember talking with you two years ago and there was some kind of, there was a distinction between the two, maybe. Um, do you, is that something you um, can explain? That, that sort of has evolved in my observation over the years. It, pub theology, I mean, it's, it's such a nebulous, like, concept. Um, there's no like real organizational structure behind it or anything like that. I think it was just a bunch of uh, mostly white men with beards um, in those sort of neo-reformed circles hanging out at pubs. And they're like, well, you know, we're not Baptist, therefore we can drink beer and that's okay. But we're going to talk about monergism while we're at a pub. Um, mm-hmm. And um Lovely conversation topic, by the way. <laughs> and and um, it, that, to me, sort of encapsulates the, the whole pub theology culture. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that, that brew theology specifically feels different, and there are other um, theology pub um, groups that mm-hmm. do it similarly to, to us. I'm not saying that we have like a corner on the market or anything like that. Um, but there are other groups that are a little bit more interfaith friendly um, mm-hmm. that aren't so heavily evangelical or heavily Christian. Um, but I, I, I think what, what sets us apart is um, the, and not necessarily brew theology specifically, but apart from the, um, the kind of theology pub culture is that sort of, interfaith welcoming um, mentality, this idea that no one faith or religion um, gets the final word. Um, and, and actually, this is kind of a, a cool segue. I didn't plan, but we do have conversation guidelines. Um, and they are that no soapboxes are allowed. So like no one person or viewpoint gets the last word. Um, we want to respect all others and their views. So basically you might not agree with somebody across the table from you, but that's okay. That's why we're all here. Like if we all had the same uh, viewpoint about particular philosophies and religions, um, it would be kind of boring. Um, mm-hmm. We just turn into the theology pubs that we all came from. <laughs> uh, you know, our other guideline is uh, we want to extend courtesy by listening well. So uh, the idea is that we want to learn about another viewpoint, um, not just, wait for my turn to speak. Um, and then everything is up for discussion. So there's no quote unquote end of debate um, unless things are getting really heated and a moderator steps in to move the discussion on to the next point. Um, and then the all encompassing rule that we say at the uh, start of every brew theology is don't be an asshole. Don't be a douche. As we say, Jersey brew theology, uh, don't be a dick. <laughs> Or on the podcast, they say, don't be an eggplant emoji. <laughs> nice. Love no, that. you can say, don't be a dick here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I know I uh, participated in a couple of the Denver uh, groups last summer when my husband was in hospital um, oh, cool. downtown. And then we actually used to have, we were ahead of our time up where I came, where I used to live. Um probably 11 years ago now, we had a small group and we called ourselves Bibles and Brews, um, which then nice. morphed into Bibles and Booze because we moved from a brewery to a distillery. Mm. <laughs> but ours was, it was run by two two ELCA Lutheran pastors. And most of our members were either ELCA Lutheran or from the uh, United Church of Christ. Okay. okay. Um, 
we tried to branch out. We really did. Mm -hmm. But I think we were so early on in the process. Um, We did mostly book discussion, though. We didn't like we didn't have our setup was slightly different, but it was the last church um, I participated in, honestly. Okay. Before I walked away. Gotcha. But it's it's such a neat concept. And I know the Denver group was so welcoming. Um, at least the Denver group I, I went to was so welcoming uh, last summer because I needed something to distract myself from what my husband was going through. So mm-hmm. it's a if you've never participated in one of the uh, the uh, beer theology groups, I I highly recommend it. It's a really neat group of people. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I actually, and with with everything being online now, um, I got a chance to uh, to join Denver Brew Theology for uh, um, for one of their sessions, and that was kind of fun to see a whole new uh, group of people. And um, yeah, to, to, I mean, it's it's kind of the same, but also with the different different leaders and different uh, discussion topics, and a whole different. Uh, type of group it's it's kind of fun to see that in action too mm-hmm. so um one of the things that i love about what we do what i noticed denver does um some of the other chapters as well is um we we develop relationships with our um our local breweries um and uh so for for us um our two main brewery partnerships are with uh, i'm going to give them a shameless plug here but oh, go um, for it yeah yeah go for it Ghost Hawk Brewing Company um, over in Clifton, New Jersey. Um, those guys have fantastic recipes. Uh, I'm a big fan of their beers. Um, and uh, and they, they developed some really good community um, in, in that area. And our other um, partner, which I have uh, nothing but respect for, um, uh, is Montclair Brewery. They're the, the first um, microbrewery in Montclair, which is kind of my hometown. Technically, I live in Clifton, but I live on the border of Clifton and Montclair. And Montclair is kind of this um, uh, hyper-liberal town in... Um, I mean, New Jersey's already a very liberal <laughs> state. But, uh, yeah, yeah, you're talking to uh, people who live in <laughs> Oklahoma and practically Nebraska, so... <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, we have we have the uh, we boast um, residents like Stephen Colbert. He lives in in Montclair, and nice. um, my um, my parents have actually bumped into him a couple times while uh, while grocery shopping. So that's fun. I like throwing that out there every once in a while. <laughs> um, but um, but Montclair Brewery, um, they uh, I, it's a, a husband and wife um, owned business, and uh, they are uh, they're a black owned brewery, and um, especially at, at at this time right now, um, if, if you're, if you're out there and you can find black owned businesses, um, go support them, go patronize them. Um, because like, honestly, they need all the support they can Mm -hmm. get. So do you happen to know if they ship? <laughs> they do not. Um, oh, of course. Sadly, yeah, because they're they're a very small operation. Um, yeah. And I mean, I have some some criticisms about like the way they got things started and uh, some of their business models, but um, which which kind of their their ability to scale, um, I think, was hampered by some of that. Oh, but, yeah. Um, but man, they're just they're such a great couple, mm-hmm. um, and they do such good work. They just. Um, it's I'm I'm constantly in awe. Uh, mm-hmm. Whenever I go there, it's such a fun place to go hang out, drink a few beers. He has um, uh, Leo, who's um, the husband. He has a, a recipe that incorporates because he's from Africa. I'm not 
don't remember which country. It's one of the francophone countries um, okay. in Africa. He's francophone, and there's a, a beer, a recipe that he has that incorporates the baobab fruit. Um, nice. Yeah, and it's it's delicious. I've never had a beer like it. It's so good. Okay, Whenever well, it's on tap, it's the only thing I drink. <laughs> well, then whenever I'm able to leave Oklahoma and come to New Jersey, I will have to go yes. by there because Yes, and I will I will no. buy your I will buy your round cuz That'd be amazing. Absolutely well, worth it. And I love that you're from the Montclair Clifton area. Uh, my mom grew up in Florham Park. Oh, okay. I that's uh, actually where I grew up. I grew up in Morristown, right on the border okay, of Morristown yep. and Florham Park. Yep. So I am very, very familiar with that entire area. So nice. uh, we have not been in several years. Um, it was probably pre pre craft beer was the last time we were there. Wow. <laughs> it's been a while. Wow. I miss, I miss the, the uh, Italian bakeries and yeah. God, oh yeah. Florham so park. Much. That's a, I mean, it's just such a, a heavy Italian. And there's like, you know, the, the legends and the myths of the, the mob <laughs> taking over Florham uh-huh. park. You know, I mean, the My, fact that there are, there's a pizza joint on every corner in that mm-hmm. town and a good pizza <laughs> joint. Yes, like that's uh, New Jersey pizza is something that uh, I think Thank part you. of it's part of it's the altitude. Like it cannot be reproduced like there is not. Um, we have a couple of East Coast pizza places here and it's close, but not. I miss East Coast pizza so much. I'll, I'll hold my tongue. I, I lived <laughs> I lived in South Carolina for a few years, and I could not find a uh, a pizza place that that met my standards. Um, it's it's hard. It is. It, New Jersey it is really difficult. New Jersey pizza is a a thing of beauty, and it's a thing all its own. Yeah, Becky, that's the other thing that I'll have to I, buy you when you come out here. Apparently, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll do that because. I let's see the closest I have been to New York and New Jersey is DC. Like okay. I've been to Washington DC and that's the closest I think I've been. Um yeah. Um so I definitely will have to try it cuz like I ha- I know Chicago pizza cuz I've been there a few times. That, but... Okay. Now you've <laughs> touched a nerve. Yes. That's not... you. Did you so see the spark in my eye? I'll <laughs> I'll 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 give you that it tastes good, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not pizza. It's not, it's a casserole. It's yeah. It's tomato soup in a bread bowl. <laughs> well, to steal from cheese, the illustrious yes. <laughs> John Stewart, um, well, this <laughs> yeah. is this is a comfort thing for me, right? I want to know that at three a.m. when I'm drunk on my ass, mm-hmm. if I face plant into my pizza, I'm not going to drown. Exactly. Well, I don't know. You might drown in grease. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. The cheese, the cheese is pretty greasy. Well, it's, but the trick is you got to fold it in half and let it drain off yeah, a little bit. Exactly. She there's, knows. There's a beauty to it. God, I, I really, really miss East Coast pizza. Like, you don't even know. <laughs> and well, the and, invite is open once a vaccine is out there. Yeah. Come nice. on out. And Nate, <laughs> when if you are able to get down here to Oklahoma City, I'll get you a fried onion burger too. Oh, that oh, sounds yeah. really good. Yes. I will never make anyone eat Rocky Mountain oysters if they come oh, visit yeah. me. Well, I won't make them eat lamb fries either, which is a thing. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> uh, lamb fried fries? That's what Ours we are... call them here. You have you heard of Rocky Mountain oysters? Like you know what those are? Yeah, I believe so. 
Okay. Now I'm starting to second guess what my um <laughs> deep fried cow testicles. Yeah. So okay. That we is not what them- I had in mind. Oh, oh then yeah. We call them lamb fries here. And I don't know if they're actually from lambs or if they just call them lamb fries and from cows because they're probably from cows because that's what we have here. Like we have like one of the like largest um like stockyards outside of Fort Worth here. And it's like, I'm pretty sure it's cow, but they call them lamb fries. I don't know. All right. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's when, when there was a thing going around a little while ago about like, what's the, like, what's a food from where you live? I was mm-hmm. like, well, lamb fries, but I'm going to say fried onion burgers because it's also a very Oklahoma thing. So, oh, okay. Right, we got the giant smothered burritos. And Rocky Mountain oysters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will admit, our Mexican food is is pretty good here. (laughs) And that is something that the last few times we were back east was sorely lacking. Yeah. It was Mm -hmm. good Mexican food. Like you guys get you have good like Dominican and Puerto Rican food, but like Mexican food is lacking. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. Okay, so um Bruce just because the door is still open and so Bruce can hear me talking. Um, he actually just texted me to um to clarify that <laughs> um that Rocky Mountain oysters or whatever else someone might call fried cow testicles and lamb fries are actually two separate things. Um oh. so lamb fries are actually lamb and or calf testicles. So like it wouldn't be terrible. <laughs> You know, yes. And this, is, why I, this is why I don't eat meat. <laughs> this is <laughs> like this is why Nicole is a vegetarian <laughs> slash vegan. Yes. <laughs> oh no, I'm not a vegan. I like You're cheese way too okay. much. Cool. Oh god, I was a vegan for six months. It was really hard. I didn't lose right. my che- my taste for cheese. It's a lie, people. Yeah, yeah. There's just nothing that can replace it. Um, but yeah, but just no nothing that kills an animal. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> so anyway, it's okay. a topic that we had at Brew Theology oh, um, fairly recently. Yeah, um, we discussed um, veganism. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there are, a, are pros and cons. Yeah, yeah. It was a really good, um, a really good conversation, and it dealt. We we dealt a lot with um, kind of our, um, you know, beliefs around violence um, mm-hmm. and our perspectives about. Um, the value of life, um, mm. and uh, do, like, do we place, like, what what is it that makes life inherently valuable? Uh, mm-hmm. Human life um, on a different scale than mm-hmm. animals, that kind of thing. So it's a really good conversation. I learned a lot. Mm. Yeah, and I think you also have to take into context to like not shaming cultures that are more animal product based because mm-hmm. like. It, it may be a um a subsistence thing especially like like um arctic circle cultures might have to be a little more animal based because vegetation is a little hard to come by there um but yeah it, it when you have the option to not eat animal products why <laughs> i mean like what is your yeah. reason to not eat them or or to yeah it's a yeah. very important it's a very interesting topic to get into and like mm-hmm. think through it, think through your why's and, on that. 
One of the things too that that stood out for me was um, uh, connecting it to to my own um, heritage as, as a Japanese American um, was the um, so so there's this thing in Japanese culture where right before you eat. Um, Everybody says um, the phrase itadakimasu, which is essentially an acknowledgement to either the chef, if um, if you're sitting right in front of the chef, uh, or or simply an acknowledgement to the, the food itself of the the kind of spiritual connection that you have to what you're consuming. Um, that there is a life energy, there is a spirit, um, there's an acknowledgement to the animal that once lived. Um, acknowledgement to the skills of the chef that prepared the food um, and and the fact that you are taking into yourself um, both for good and for evil um, the 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 force the life the energy of whatever it is that you're consuming um, so if that if that food were prepared at any point over the course of its preparation in any unethical way you're also acknowledging that um, there is something unethical in what I'm doing, um, as well. Um, and, and like, like if you, if you ask any person, um, it's just simply a quick little statement of gratitude for my food. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a lot of stuff behind it that, um, that holds a lot of extra meaning. Well, and in, I, in similar and completely different ways in kitchen witchcraft, it's a lot the same way. Uh, like as you're, you're crafting your meal, you, you thank, you give thanks and, and welcome the energies of what you're making because your intent goes into what you're creating. Um, and then you get life back from what you're creating. And it's, it, it's a similar, um, symbiosis isn't really the word I was looking for, but it's one I like to use, mm. <laughs> but yeah. it is, it's, it's a, it's similar, just taking a few moments to acknowledge what you're getting from it, what you're putting into it. Yeah. So re regardless of your position on, on, um, meat consumption, the, the way that we consume meat and food in general here in, in, in America and the Western world really is, um, like it's, it's hard to look at that and think that that is, healthy or ethical mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um you know the 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 treatment of livestock um even even soy uh the way that um that soy is grown and mass produced here it's not good for you mm -hmm. um the america has a, a really unhealthy relationship with uh with consumption yeah well and you're Overall, talking to yes. <laughs> two people who live in the heart of like farm and and ranch country yeah. uh Factory farming is the lifeblood of where I live. Mm. Um, factory ranching. And I know a lot of people here don't understand why I'm a vegetarian. And that's fine. It has, it, for me, it's mostly health reasons. Mm. But I do struggle with factory raised meat mm. and the way that we, and I hate, I hate how weaponized the term genetically modified has become yeah. because yeah. people don't actually understand everything technically is genetically modified mm -hmm. at this yeah. point, yeah. but it's the, it's the, um, I don't even know how to, how to describe it, but it's like the, the resistance that they've built into some of the crops, uh, a lot of things, the things that Monsanto and I hate, and again, I hate to get on this bandwagon too, cause I'm, <laughs> But this, it, it, living where I live, this is kind of how we, you know, it's everybody's lifeblood. But 
the way that they've engineered the crops to only be fertilized a specific way using a specific formula, um, like certain crops will not germinate if they aren't grown with a specific formula. So Mm. like if I got seeds from one of the factory farms here because I don't have their fertilizers and their pesticides, whatever I grow won't germinate. Hmm. Wow. And that's, and it's how they are trying to keep, keep um, competition down. Um, It prevents cross pollination in a lot of plants um, Mm. to keep Mm -hmm. their strains of uh, like, so Monsanto can have a, um, and Cargill can have a specific strain of corn that they have that no one else has. Mm-hmm. Sounds like um, capitalism to me. A bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and mm. like, and I struggle with stuff like that. So like we, we try to grow as much of our own fruits and mm. vegetables as possible, but like going back to the meat thing, like what I always get is, oh, well, you're against hunting. And I said, no, I'm absolutely not against hunting as long as it's done responsibly. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I have plenty of friends who hunt. I don't eat what they eat because I don't enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. My husband used to hunt. Um, I had one, I had an allergic reaction to some deer that he had gotten that had gotten into some sagebrush, which I am terribly, terribly uh, allergic to. Yeah. That will sour you on eating uh, mm. <laughs> ethically, ethically yeah. sourced food. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not against it. I'm not against meat eating. I'm not going to yell at you for doing it. Um, it's, it is your choice but respect the fact that this is my choice too because i can't in good conscience take part in it right mm-hmm. also right. it makes me feel icky yeah so, like physically <laughs> icky not mentally and emotionally icky so yeah but and i mean and it, it is it's very nuanced yeah yeah it is and i think it's it's tough too um and again i'm, I'm getting on the uh, the american bashing thing but like mm-hmm. You look at the um, food that's accessible to people who live below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the um, the ability for uh, for people to even access ethically sourced food, um, like it's it ends up becoming a status symbol if you can eat something that that's not um, factory farmed or factory produced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I'm technically middle class and the ability for me to access um, non-factory farmed foods is difficult. Yeah. So like even more so those who are not even as anywhere near as privileged as I am. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's honestly, it, it's, it's upsetting to think that it is a privilege to even have a conversation surrounding this because right. for a lot of people you know, a, a, a $12 lunch is completely unheard of. Oh yeah. Um, so, you know, what, what are they going to do? They've just got to get the, uh, the can of beans from, from the supermarket, whatever the, the cheapest one is. And 99% of the time, that's not something that's eth- ethically sourced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, the world we live in. <laughs> it's hard to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's and like where we live, like our shopping choices are Safeway, large corporation, mm. Walmart, large corporation, or the small local market, which unfortunately does not carry a huge variety of mm. stuff. 
in general, we do get great produce, but it's mm-hmm. local. Like we have, yeah. it's, it's factory farmed, but it's local. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of, of an offset there. So, <laughs> so, so the win lose, I, and I can't bash it because it's, um, part to do with the company I work for. So, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe changing the subject a little bit. Um, Nate, you mentioned that you are, um, Japanese American and, yes. um, I think part of the things that we're going through now, um, there has been uh, some, um, more focus on Asian Americans. Um, and I don't know if you've noted, if you've experienced any kind of, um, discrimination through the whole coronavirus situation or in general, um, yeah. maybe yeah. talk on that a little bit. Um, yes. And, um, it's, it's weird to me because, um, you know, I, I live in uh, a very ethnically diverse part of the country. Um, so, and, and honestly it was, um, the only time that, um, at least with respect to the to the current pandemic, um, it was the only time that I had experienced anything, and um, I have heard of a lot of um, even even here in the New York City area, um, a lot of um, incredibly aggressive um, actions being taken against um, East Asian Americans. But um, there actually there were. Twice, um, there were uh, two occasions where I experienced some microaggressions. Um, one wasn't necessarily directed uh, at me. Um, it was prior to uh, the pandemic hitting North America. Um, it was at some point, I think, toward the middle or end of February. Um, I was at a, a hockey game. Um, my the, the team that I follow, the Montreal Canadiens, and uh, they were in town um, playing against the New Jersey Devils. And it happened to be, I believe it was the, the, the start of the Chinese New Year. Um, and they were having like a little uh, um, dragon dance festival thing going on in the concourse. And uh, some of the dancers were going around and a handful of people were, uh, were shouting out like, yo, it's a little weird. You're doing that right now. Like, you guys are bringing a virus over here. Oh, wow. Like, um, and then the um, the second time it was uh, directed at me, and it was um, toward the end of March. And here in New Jersey, um, the the lockdown started. Um, I believe it was March twenty first, and we um, you know mask orders were put into place almost immediately. And I remember standing in line outside of a uh, of a store. I was picking up some uh, um, uh, some equipment. And uh, for for a computer upgrade, and um, not that that's an important detail, but um, <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> I'm a computer nerd, <laughs> so I was I was out shopping for computer parts, and yes. uh, I was standing in line. You know, they had the the six feet line outside where you go in, and then they you, you know you give the person your phone number, and they would text you when it's time for you to come into the store. Mm-hmm. And um, somebody that is that was waiting in line um, near me just kind of. Uh, you know, as a way to, I guess, make conversation, thought he was being funny, mm-hmm. um, did this whole, like, made this comment like, um, oh, miss, miss, it must suck knowing that your people are bringing this, this shit over here. And, uh, <laughs> like, um, 
like I didn't know I, I was kind of frozen because um, I have the, the benefit of of not being black or brown. So I experiencing microaggressions is a little different for me. Um, and I guess I've kind of been conditioned to just sort of keep my mouth shut. Um, and I, I, I froze. I didn't really know how to respond to that. Um, when I got into the store later on, uh, somebody who apparently was in line or around the same, uh, uh, the same area as me, um, this, uh, this black guy, he looks at me and he goes, white people, right? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no offense guys, but yeah. White people. No, no. <laughs> no, that was actually also my response. Um, mm-hmm. it's so like, it's hard for me to really comment on the, the larger experience of Asian Americans, I guess, because I, I don't, I don't want to give the sense that we're a monolith that we all experience life the same way. Right. Um, but there are certain shared experiences, um, you know, like the um, uh, comments about our eyes. I remember growing up, like one of the jokes that that one of my friends in college had was, um, you know, do you see life in 16 by nine widescreen? And like, oh. I get it. I get it. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Um, so it, it's tough because it's not, you know, we're, especially now I, I try to be um, cautious or at least tie the experience to um, my gratefulness for um, what, black people have done and fought for in this country. Like were it not for uh, the civil rights act of 1964, we would not have the immigration act of 1965. Mm -hmm. Um, My family would not have entered this country were it not for the fight that black people have had and continue to have, Mm -hmm. um, which is why I get very vocal when it comes to, um, uh, to what black people are, are fighting for uh, currently. Um, so I, I try to, whenever I, I talk about my experience, I try to also make people aware that it is very much tied to the, the ethnic minority experience overall, um, in America. Um, and that there's a lot that people tend to not be aware of. And even Asian Americans, um, of my, my parents and grandparents generation. Now I'm actually, uh, first generation, um, American. So, um, my dad came over from, from Japan, uh, to study here in, uh, in, in the States. And, um, so I don't have the same kind of history. Um, so it's a little, that's another thing I, I've talked to a few people about. That's a little bit, uh, a little bit tough for me to really grapple with as well is, um, the history of Japanese Americans, um, in, 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 in America. Like I, I don't have the connection uh, directly to that experience, mm-hmm. but I am Japanese American. And so, uh, I do sometimes get kind of asked about, about my thoughts on it. Um, and it, and it's tough because, um, while that was happening here, my ancestors were, um, you know, taking over China and Korea and, you know, spreading their imperial mindset around the Eastern world. So, mm-hmm. You know, I'm 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 a child of of two mindsets: the um, the immigrant who was um, thrown into a concentration camp here, mm-hmm. and the uh, the enslaver, uh, the empire over that's, there. That's so, 
it's a, it's a weird place to be. Um, but like, I think the way I try to, um, uh, to sort of grapple with it is to think about the history of, um, of Asian Americans, um, in general, um, from the time that Chinese slaves were first brought over, uh, to the U S to build the transcontinental railroad, um, to the whole concept of yellow peril, um, in the 1800s. And, uh, if you're not aware, um, the idea of yellow, yellow peril in, in the 1800s was this, uh, propaganda machine that basically, um, taught that and, in, and ingrained in the American psyche that, um, East Asian cultures were an inherent an existential threat to the Western world. Um, and so uh, in the late 1800s, the Chinese Exclusion Act was uh, was put into place. And it was initially supposed to be 10 years of no Chinese people coming to America. They're already overrunning this country. We can't keep letting them in. Um, and then, of course, like I mentioned uh, earlier, the uh, Japanese-American concentration camps um, during World War II. Um, and then there's kind of a, a change in tune uh, during the Cold War as um, communist propaganda was starting to entice Americans. Um, the American government began to uh, have a friendlier tone to their East Asian allies because mm-hmm. they needed help fighting against uh, the, uh, the Soviets. Yeah. And, and uh, so, of course, following that was the Immigration Act of 1965, which, yes, it was a good thing, but there was a lot of preferential treatment given to Asian immigrants who were of higher uh, socioeconomic status, who um, were looked at as beneficial to the American economy. Um, whether they had more hardworking personalities or um, were the kinds of people that had good family values, um, which when you handpick those people and bring them over here, um, of course, they are going to look better than the ethnic minorities that are already here that have been suffering um, for generations and generations, mm-hmm. uh, which is where the concept of the model minority comes from. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that, um, you know, you hold up um, Asian Americans as this bastion of like, look, they're look at what they're able to do. You know, mm-hmm. the myth of the rich Asian, which um, is a myth because the Asian American community is one of the highest poverty communities um, in the country. But we often think of, um, you know, the the more wealthy um, Asian communities. We like to think of doctors and, and, and lawyers um, who are of Asian descent. and. Um, if you're handpicking those people and bringing them here, of course they're going to look good when you compare them to the the diversity that exists within the black and brown community that has been here in in the U.S. for centuries. And we're not handpicked, except that they were taken over here in chattel slavery. Right. Um, so it's it's this sort of like you've got that you have. Um, the fact that there's this ignorance of the structural inequity that has forced those communities into poverty, um, that it's, it's whiteness's fault that black people live the way they do in America. And then if you want to go even further nuanced than that, um, black immigrants from 
um, uh, from Africa, they come over here, and then it's further ingrained in both in their mindsets and in the mindsets of those who live here that look, well, look at them. So there must be something that you're doing wrong, oh, black American, because even the black African immigrant can pick themselves up by the bootstraps and fight their way to the quote unquote top of the food chain. Um, (laughs) But all the while ignoring the history of structural inequity that has gone on in this country for centuries. Mm And it's not that they had to come through a ridiculous immigration system that made them have to have a certain amount of assets and uh, no. and privileges just to be able to come here. And so therefore already have resources and are coming for college probably. Right. Or otherwise have already have some kind of special talent and or education. It's like, yeah, it, it, yes. Yeah. (laughs) I I lived in, I lived in Kenya um, for a year and saw a friend uh, go through the process of coming to the U S to go to college and just Mm. all of the hoops that mm. existed that was in 2005 and just all the hoops that existed then i don't even know how horrible it is now but yeah yes yeah all of that <laughs> right right so well, and then we have the other side of the immigration uh we have the refugee community here oh, yeah. um the again the lutheran church <laughs> the elca <laughs> it's essentially their it's their welfare program that has brought a lot of the Somalian and Ethiopian refugees to the rural parts of Colorado and Nebraska. Um, so like we have an apartment block right across the alley from our house that is all uh, Somali refugees. And the way that they are perceived here in town is um better than where we moved from because uh, we had a large we had a let's see are they easy no they were Somali we had a, a large Somali population where we moved from also um, they they come they work at the meatpacking plants mm-hmm. which sure. to me is just <laughs> ironic yeah. um, but and that's where where they get set up and they they get put to work um, but they are some of the nicest kindest people that I've met in town we have a huge language barrier, but we communicate with hand gestures and we smile and we say hello. Um, but it's amazing the perception here that they are also part of the freeloading system. Mm. And yeah. as they've had to work their asses off to get here in the same way that, you know, anybody else has had to work. Yeah. It's not like they just got to get on a plane and come here. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. It. It kind of makes me um, like th- this whole everything that we're kind of living in right now, and um, uh, even even prior to this, um, over the last I would say like three or four years, I've been kind of um, exploring a, a little bit this uh, the concept of whiteness um, and, and what its markers are. Um, how it kind of exists it's it's a weird kind of insidious sneaky thing because you can't really put your finger on it like as far as what um um 
like who who belongs um, in in whiteness. You know, in mm-hmm. in some circles, um, Jewish people are white. In other circles, they're not. Um, you know, uh, throughout history, whiteness has been a moving target. You know, um, it you Italian people were at one point not considered white. Now, mm-hmm. are they white? Are they not white? Um, Irish people, you know, mm-hmm. that at one point they were not white. Now they are white, but in some circles they might not be white. Um, and so, what that leads me to to think is that whiteness exists as a method and tactic for othering people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's a way to um, hold power over another group of people um, that don't belong to what you classify as yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like, it's an insider thing. Um, and there are certain groups of people who sometimes belong to whiteness and other times don't. And then there are large groups of people who will never attain whiteness. Um, but in our society, whiteness is the, um, the most powerful, um, currency that you can carry around. Um, and there are certain levels. I mean, I want to go into too many different tangents, but like, you know, the white cisgender heterosexual male Mm -hmm. is the, um, is the wealthiest quote unquote in, in society, as far as your, um, social, uh, status. And then, you know, right next to them, um, ironically enough are, um, the white cisgender gay male, mm-hmm. um, because they can kind of look the part, um, and they kind of sort of fit in, even though the, uh, the power brokers feel a little betrayed by them because they're no longer quote unquote in the boys club, mm-hmm. um, with regards to the power dynamics and the desire to control women. Um, next to that are the, um, white uh cisgender heterosexual women who are um notorious now for um <laughs> using their whiteness um mm-hmm. as uh as a weapon mm-hmm. and i would argue as terrorism uh what mm-hmm. we had mm-hmm. happened right here uh right nearby us in in central park with um uh mm-hmm. amy cooper mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. that I would argue is an act of terrorism mm-hmm. um, because the threat to a black man um, of calling the cops, um, you, we like we already know what the likely end result of that kind of confrontation is going to be. Right. Um, you are using that potential phone call as a way to strike fear and terror into somebody's uh heart and that that to me i mean that i don't see any other way of of describing that other than mm-hmm. yeah that's an act of terrorism um i was talking to someone about this this morning that white people white men in general but white people overall do not understand consequences for their actions mm. um and their initial their initial response to anything is threats and aggression yeah and when when did this become acceptable because it and i know it's always been there but it feels like it's so much deeper now 
the conversation I was having was around the make my day law and, and gun ownership, but it's, it's still, you know, why is the, your first response to a noise in your backyard? I'm going to, I'm going to kill whatever's there. Right. And it's, and it is, and it's, I, it, I think inherently it goes to that fear of the other, but why, why are we so afraid of the other? Mm-hmm. And when did it become acceptable to use threats? And I guess it's always been not they were not acceptable, but um, it's one of those systemic things that it's, well, if you were uncomfortable, it's okay. But as a child, I was taught you you tell somebody you're going to injure them. There are consequences for your actions, right? Mm-hmm. And there's physical injury and there's mental emotional injury, and like what Amy Cooper did was psychological, as well as as potential physical harm. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the white community at large doesn't understand why she should be held responsible for what she did is concerning to me as a cis het white woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we need to, we as white people need to interrogate what it is that we're afraid of losing or afraid of in general that we lash out mm-hmm. Um rather than approach with charity like approach charitably like um or or just don't approach with fear and um like what what are we afraid of like and and i think it'll take a lot of digging because i don't know that any of us really know on the surface why Hmm. i think it's something that's just been that it, that we've been socialized to react in a certain way because at some point it upheld the structure and it has continued to uphold that same structure, but it's not, but it's been passed down generation, 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 and we need to dig into it and figure out what mm-hmm. that was and what it is that it's upholding. And yeah, it's, it's a lot and it's time. It's well past time mm-hmm. to be doing this. Well, yeah, I, I look at it like talking to a child about something that they're afraid of that maybe they shouldn't be afraid of. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, well, okay, why are you afraid of, well, we'll use my fear of ducks. We'll, yes. we'll, just, we'll just use my fear of ducks. <laughs> Wait, that's why? a thing? Oh, Lord, yes, that is a thing. Oh. Ducks are terrifying. Well, um, if we'll get into it a little more <laughs> in the bonus in the bonus episode. But, but in general, like I, I do not have a great relationship with peacocks, ducks, ostriches, birds with large beaks. Um, not a fan. But okay, why am I afraid of this? Have I had an interaction with any of these? Okay, yes, I have had a couple of negative interactions with some peacocks, couple of negative interactions with some ducks it has left like this weird muscle memory almost like, so I just really don't like them. Do I have a reason to really hate ducks? No. And it's like, and it's an oversimplistic explanation, but it's the same things like, okay, well, did, did you have, did you have a negative experience? Did something happen to you? Well, okay. Well, what happened the next time you came encounter in came to an encounter with someone like this? Was it positive? 
yes. Okay. Well, there we go. Like, let's, let's figure out why you keep reacting in the negative as, as opposed to in the positive. Yeah. I also wonder if there's at, at some level, um, a belief that an inherent belief that this is all a zero sum game Mm -hmm. and that, um, I mean, it, it, it's been shared so many times, at least in our circles that it's essentially become a meme, but that, um, to, uh, to the privileged equality for another, um, feels like ostracization. Um, and it, it's true. Um, I don't want to discount that saying. And ultimately, I don't think I am. Um, but I think that might be part of maybe what's going on is this fear mm-hmm. that, you know, if 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 Black people get what they deserve, then what's going to be left for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's that fear. There's the fear that... Um, that they will be held personally responsible, which if, if that's a fear that you have, then maybe you should kind of look internally (laughs) (laughs) at some of what you've been doing throughout your life. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, there's that fear that maybe I'll be held personally responsible, uh, for the atrocities committed against black people throughout the history of this country. Um, when in reality, that's not what reparations Mm -hmm. are. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Just some thoughts that were kind of yeah rolling around in my mind. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I trying to explain white this. people to white people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me, white people don't understand white people. Yep. It's, oh God, that's the truth. It's so. <laughs> white people. I've got a plug for a book. Actually, um, yeah. my friend, my friend Carrie. Um, speaking of white people, uh, she's a white person, <laughs> but she wrote this book. It's called Good White Racist, Ooh, um, uh-huh. Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. And nice. um, it is chock full of fantastic stuff, um, reflecting on whiteness as a white person um, and how uh, how best to kind of navigate your own feelings um, as as you interact with um, with black people, as you learn to do the work of um, anti-racism, mm-hmm. hopefully drawing people into that place, um, it's 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 some really good shit, and um, I highly recommend it uh, to anyone, especially like if if you're curious about what's going on um, with respect to what black people are are talking about, but you're not willing to read a book written by a black person, which kind of has its own sort of inherent. <laughs> problems um but the fortunate thing is that there are white people who are writing some good stuff mm-hmm. um that's that's worth uh reading and, and her book is is definitely worth reading everyone's got to start somewhere hopefully yeah hopefully you go farther than that yes uh, if that's where you have to start that's where you have to start yeah so, yeah definitely meet uh, the people they are yeah it's true well, Nate, thanks for joining us this has been a great conversation it, yeah it went, thanks for the invite places that I don't know that any of us were expecting, but it was great. Nope. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, that's what happens. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I didn't tell you, but I'm on my third beer already. So nice. um, I'm, I'm going to places tonight. Okay. Well, before we, <laughs> before we wrap up then tell us what beers you've been drinking. Okay. Um, so 
right now I'm drinking um, the Hackensack Lager by um, the Alimentary Brewing Company, um, mm-hmm. which is over in Hackensack, New Jersey. Um, I drink. I drink mostly. As far as beers go, I try to stick to lagers and pilsners. Um, I used to be a big IPA fan, kind of fell off of that bandwagon after um, I lost my sense of smell. Oh, well. That's a joke. That's a joke yeah. because of what IPAs are like. But anyways. Yeah. Um, okay, wait. Just a follow-up question. New England IPAs or West Coast IPAs? Or both? Um, Do you have a preference? If I were to drink another IPA, um, probably a New England IPA because it's a little easier on the palate. Um and then maybe if I get back into drinking IPAs, I'll, I'll pick up a, a West Coast IPA again. Back when I was in my IPA heyday, West Coast IPAs all, all, all day. I, str- I did not think I liked IPAs for years. And then one of the local breweries here started making New England IPAs. And I'm like, oh, oh, I can do this. Because mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. not, they, they don't, um, they don't rape your senses with bitterness. <laughs> Like there is no Indeed. nice way to, I, the, well, and the whole, I have issues with Lagunitas and some of yeah. the stuff their owner has done and I have feelings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, I'm a beer nerd. So uh, I will, okay. I will always okay. ask those questions. Gotcha. Yeah. I, um, I'm, I'm more of a, uh, drinker. Um, I tend to lean towards, uh, scotch and, um, Japanese whiskeys. Those are my, uh, and they're very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm, where I'm at right now. Yeah. Well, Nate, thanks for joining us. This is, this is a great conversation. Thank you for having me. And um, Nate uh, said that he was able to stay around for the bonus episode. So those of you that are $5 um, patrons or above on patreon.com slash sisters, you will get to hear that in a few days. Um, and if you're not, you can join us there. Twisted Sisters is a member of the Goosecast Network. Our theme song was written by Michael Basinger and performed by Kian Nuts. The closing music was created and performed by Andy Moore and the transition music by Sean Ose. Our artwork was done by Cheyenne Davis of Shay's Designs. You can contact her at davischeyenne.com to do your graphic design project. Becky produced and Nicole edited this episode. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Twisted Sisters and on Facebook as Twisted Sisters Podcast. And share the magic by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Twisted Sisters. $1 a month gets you a membership at the Twisted Tavern, and $5 a month also drops a bonus episode with a weekly guest into your podcaster. And you get to listen to the episode a day early. 